0: Good evening everyone, good evening, my name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here at St Paul's and it's my real pleasure to welcome each and every one of you here this evening for a night on the body. I'll introduce our speaker in a moment. But for those of you who haven't been to one of our events here before, let me explain quickly how it works. In a moment, Paula Gooder will speak about what a biblical spirituality for the whole person might be and what difference it might make for us, and she'll speak for about 35 to 40 minutes and then we'll have plenty of time for you to ask your questions and if you have a question we ask you to write it down on the back of your program and then hold it up to be collected and you can do this at any point throughout the evening up until around 7.40 please we ask you to keep them brief and legible we're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag PaulaGooder and if you'd like to send us your question through a device you just type in your question and then include the hashtag PaulaGooder and we will find it. And with the white hot technology of the Church of England your questions will then be sent to me up here. Uh, I'm sitting behind uh, the laptop. Some people think I'm catching up on Versailles, but I'm not. I'm reading your questions and I'll put as many of them as I can to Paula. We're going to end at 8 o'clock. There's then a bookstall here where you can buy uh, Paula's new book about the body and the Bible and she's very kindly said she will sign copies as well on the desk over there. So now it gives me enormous pleasure to introduce our speaker. Dr. Paula Gooder is one of the best known and appreciated biblical theologians working today, and she is in great demand as a public speaker. She's just been appointed the first full time theologian in residence at the Bible Society, and she's also canon theologian at Birmingham Cathedral. She's one of the six preachers at Canterbury Cathedral, she's a visiting lecturer at King's College London, she's an associate lecturer at St. Melitus College, and she's a reader in the Church of England. So whatever else she has to say about the body tonight, we know that her own travels round quite a bit. (laughs) She's the author of a lot of books, including The Fascinating Heaven, and her new book, body, a biblical spirituality for the whole person, which she says is, in some ways, a follow-up to heaven, and which we're here to talk about tonight. Intriguing that the body follows on from heaven. I've reached that time of life when the broad mind and the narrow waist swap places, (laughs) and it feels far away from heaven, let me tell you. A number of things make Paula stand out in the world of biblical studies, but I think above all it's her unusual combination of serious, innovative scholarship combined with a great gift for communicating excessively both her own passion for the Bible and her belief that a deep, questioning, adventurous engagement with it is for everyone. As she says, my great passion for many years now has been to excite people to read the Bible either for the first time or again, so that they are transformed to be more and more like Jesus. That is a high and very good goal for this evening. So please, would you join me in welcoming our speaker, Paula Gooder.
1: Thank you very much for your warm welcome. It is a great treat to be here in this beautiful place to talk this evening about my current favourite subject, bodies. When you're writing a book, probably the most common question that people will ask you is why are you writing this particular book? When I was writing this particular book, the book on the body, the question was slightly different and it was more to do with tone of voice than it was to do with the question. The question was normally, why are you writing a book on the body in Paul? Why on earth would anyone want to do that? It's slightly off-putting when you're in the middle of a book to have person after person after person say, why would you do that? Let me tell you. The first reason why I decided to write a book on the body in Paul came at the end of my previous book, um, which Mark mentioned already, the book on heaven. By the time I worked my way through my various different themes on heaven... I ended with a section on the resurrection of the body and why the resurrection of the body was so important in the end of the Old Testament period and through the New Testament period. And I fell into a conversation with someone after I'd finished that book, which began to make me realize there was a lot still to talk about. The person said something along the lines of, But Christianity doesn't think bodies are very important. So why would we have an eternity in bodies if Christianity is inherently opposed to bodies? Which I'm sure you will agree is a really good question. And so I began thinking about bodies and why they are important. And whether in fact that perception that Christianity is inherently opposed to bodies is in fact true. So that was one strand that was working its way through my mind. The other strand is a very much more personal strand, which is that, shock news, I'm a woman. And one of the things about being a woman in today's society is that people make comments about your body most of the time, they will comment about what you're wearing, about what your hair is like, about how tall you are. In my cases, not often very complimentary, but people make comments regularly about bodies. I can't tell you what it's like to be a man because I don't know. You can tell me later. But as a woman, people make comments about bodies all the time. And there are expectations about what your body ought to be like, but more importantly, what your body ought not to be like. And I've grown up with this, and I've become quite accustomed to it. But I've got two daughters, and they're teenagers. And as I was beginning to reflect on bodies, I began looking at my two daughters, my two teenagers, and began to see the pressure that was on them, that arguably is even greater than the pressure that I've experienced in my adult life. And as I was looking at them and reflecting on what they are going to experience as they grow up, I began to yearn for a Christian voice. A Christian voice that could come and speak passionately about what we think beautiful bodies really look like what we think beautiful bodies really are like. Now, if you know Christian theology, you'll know that there are some books on the body, and there are some very excellent books on the body. But there are not very many, and they are not widely read. And if I were to ask a straw poll of you tonight... If you are anything like the other people I've asked as a straw poll, you may not be, but if you are, then by and large, most people would have, at best, a sense of hesitation if you put Christianity and bodies next to each other. That's on a good day. Um, On a bad day, it's a lot worse than that. But at best, it's a certain level of hesitation that actually Christianity doesn't really have very much positive to say about bodies and then if I were to press you there's a high chance that you would point the finger of blame somewhere and say the reason why Christianity does not have a positive view of bodies is Paul and it was that that began to make me think it's time for us to do some serious thinking. Time to begin to explore this area and unpack it and see where we get to. See what might be able to be said. Now I'm being slightly disingenuous with you because I already knew the answer but I'm telling you the story about how I began to write the book because I'm going to tell you something now which you won't hear very often so are you ready? There is a rough consensus in New Testament scholarship you don't hear that very often so let me say it again there is a rough consensus in New Testament scholarship that Paul is in fact quite in favor of bodies what is fascinating is that rough consensus in New Testament scholarship has not reached outside the realm of New Testament scholarship And that's where I began to realize there was a task to do. There's work to do in order to communicate that rough consensus to people who have never heard of it. So why do New Testament scholars think that? Where does it come from? In order to be able to get into this, we need to take a step backwards and realize something about how we view the writings of Paul, and the lens through which we do read the writings of Paul. You may not know it, but most of you here will have an inner Plato, and your inner Plato will tell you certain things when you are reading the writings of Paul, And one of the things that it will tell you while you're reading the writings of Paul is that the soul is opposite to the body. The soul is the good to the body's bad. The soul is separate to the body and enters the body to animate it and will leave it on death. That largely comes from a Platonic philosophy, even if you didn't know it, it does. And so what happens is when we read Paul, we see the word soul and hear that animating force that is influenced by Platonic philosophy. When we read the word body, we hear in our minds Plato's view of the body, which when put as boldly as he can, there's a place in Plato where Plato says, the body is the coffin of the soul. The idea being that the soul is animated and all-knowing and all-wise And when it enters the coffin of the body, it loses all of its wisdom until eventually it rises out of the body again at the end of life and returns to its wisdom. And our problem is that when we see the word soul and when we see the word body, Plato crowds into our mind, as I said, even if you don't know he does, he does. And we read Paul in those ways the first problem. The second problem is that we do is we conflate two sets of words into each other. You may know that in the writings of Paul, there are four words that are really important. Well, actually, there are three words that are really important. And a fourth one we add in. The four words are body, soul, flesh, and spirit. So when we see the word body, we hear flesh. When we see the word soul, we hear spirit. And if you don't believe me, just get someone to talk about the soul for a moment. And what you will notice is two or three sentences in, they'll flick and use the word spirit, and then they'll flick back and use the word soul, and nobody will comment and nobody will notice because we're so used to assuming that they're the same word. What you need to do when reading Paul is pull those four words apart. The one thing that Paul is very, very careful about is he uses the word body when he means the word body, and he uses the word flesh when he means the word flesh. Same with soul and spirit. I said just a moment ago that there are three important words in Paul and the fourth not so important. You may be interested to know that the not so important word is the word soul. The word soul only occurs 13 times in the writings of Paul. And that all depends on which English translation you're reading, incidentally. Because the word Psuche, which is the Greek word from which we get our word psychology, the word psuche. now that occurs 13 times. If you are looking for a pastime on a dreary day, take out your English translation that you read most often and count the word soul in Paul. Depending on your translation, you will find it either hardly ever maybe three times, or maybe more than that, up to 14 or 15... No, no, you won't have it that often. You'll have it maybe 10 or 11 times. But interestingly, the word soul is not important in the writings of Paul. And we haven't got the time this evening in only half an hour to explore why it's not important. But for Paul, soul is not the most important word in his writings. So, first issue is that we read Paul and we have the lens of Plato interpreting Paul to us. And when we read Paul with the lens of Plato interpreting Paul to us, what we do is we split those four words into two categories. One with the heading good, and under that comes spirit and soul, and the other with the heading bad, under which comes body and flesh. Now the very interesting thing is once you take the lens of Plato off, and you begin to read Paul in his own right, then something happens. And the something that happens is, for me, the really fascinating thing, which is that you realize that when Paul uses the word flesh, it is mostly used negatively, with a few neutral occasions. When he uses the word body, it is mostly positive, with a few neutral occasions. And then just occasionally, he uses it negatively. But he only ever uses the word body negatively when he puts another word with it. So the body of sin or the body of death. But when he uses the word body on its own, it is largely positive or neutral, not negative. And that begins to raise all sorts of interesting questions. How was he using these words? What does he mean when he uses these words? And of course I haven't got the time to tell you in detail this evening, but let me just give you a few glances through because I think they're quite interesting. On a few occasions when Paul uses the word psuche, which is the way that we would often translate the word, um, which we'd often translate as the word soul, he often is using it to describe the whole person, the life or the life force of a person. It's that which makes a person alive. And fascinatingly, it follows the Hebrew use. If you want the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word is the word nefesh. And when the Hebrew word nefesh is used, it almost always includes the body and doesn't exclude the body. So Paul uses the word psuche, like its Hebrew heritage, to include the whole of a person, including their body. The word spirit is that which comes from God. We all of us have God's have a spirit within us, and the spirit is that which entwines with God's spirit. So the spirit is the Godward part of us. The word flesh is the opposite to the word spirit. So the word spirit is that which pulls us towards God. The word flesh is that which pulls us away in the opposite direction. And let me just stop for a moment and talk about that, because this becomes really important. Plato is a dualist. And many subsequent Christian theologians after Paul were also dualists. And a dualist is someone who does have two categories. And they would place at the top of one category the word bad and at the, t- the other to- top of the other category the word good. Paul, I would argue, is not a dualist. Paul works with dualities now, you may think I'm getting slightly over-technical here, but it's really important. Within dualism, there are things that are only ever good and only ever bad. If you know your Paul, you'll know that part of the essence of Paul is that Paul believes in redemption. There is nothing that is irredeemable in Paul. And therefore, he is not a dualist. But he does work with dualities, with twos. The whole point, however, is there is not one category which is completely bad and one category that was completely good. One category comes from God and seeks to break into the other category and to redeem it. If you were to put words at the top of Paul's twos, at the top of one would be this world. And at the top of the other would be the world to come. And what Paul does really interestingly is line up things that are characterised by this world and things that are characterised by the world to come. And in his lists, he would put flesh in this world and spirit in the world to come. When Paul uses the word flesh, what he's talking about mostly is that which will come to an end. That which will eventually end with this world. When he talks about the word spirit, he talks about that which will never come to an end. That that which lives in the world to come. And the reason why flesh and spirit pull against each other is if you give power to flesh, you are giving power to something that will come to an end. If you give power to spirit, you give power to something that will never end. Where would Paul put the word body, therefore, in his lists, this world and the world to come? And this is the really important point. He would put it in this list and in this list. This world is a world that is populated by bodies. The world to come is a world that is also going to be populated by bodies. The reason why Paul cannot, for a moment, be understood to be anti-body is he believes that our existence now is embodied and our existence in the world to come will also be embodied. What that begins to make you see is that for Paul, bodies are not bad. Bodies are that with which we engage in the world. And there are two strands out of this which I think are very interesting. When Paul uses the word body, he uses it both to to refer to identity, who I am as a person. Fascinatingly, Paul does talk about bodies as my identity, how how, how I am as a person, But he also talks about bodies that relate to other people. Your identity is through relationship. Your body is what allows you to be somebody who relates to other people. In this world and in the world to come, we will be embodied. And our embodiment tells us who we are and helps us to relate to the people around us. And this is where we get to the whole subject of resurrection and the resurrection of the body. I'm sure that you will recognise, therefore, that Paul's theology about the resurrection of the body, his argument that says we will have a body for eternity, actually places bodies right at the centre of Paul's theology. What Paul is saying in his theology is, as those who are following Christ, those who are in the Spirit, need to learn to live in our bodies now and for eternity and if you can't learn to live in your body now you're rather stuffed for eternity because you need to be able to be embodied for the whole of eternity and if you can encapsulate a lot of what Paul talks about in his writings they are largely writings about how to be embodied How you live in this world with an eye to the world to come. How do you learn to be people of the spirit who can live in the way that Christ has called us to live? So let us spend a moment or two stopping and thinking about resurrection and the resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body in 1 Corinthians 15 is a climax of 1 Corinthians, and in a moment I'll show you precisely how it's a climax. But for me, one of the really interesting things about 1 Corinthians 15 is in it, Paul starts to get into detail about what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. And there's a crucial bit in the middle of 1 Corinthians um, 15 where Paul raises a question that somebody has asked of him. With what kind of bodies will we be raised? The problem is, just as we who are reading 1 Corinthians 15 are thinking, rather good question, i rather like the answer to that question, Paul responds, fool. (laughs) At which point you go, no, I wasn't asking that question. I was thinking of something else entirely. But the question is an important one. What, and it's the one that we return to time and time again. What are our resurrection bodies going to be like? What are they going to look like? What are they going to feel like? Let's begin with that question with a little slip over into the Gospels and then we'll come back into 1 Corinthians 15. The really interesting thing is if you were to ask most people what they might imagine a resurrection body might be like, um, and I've done this on numerous occasions, um, people largely have this kind of lovely image. You know, everything you really don't like about your body now, come the resurrection, it's all going to be gone. You're going to be Barbie and Ken of the resurrection world. Frankly, it's a horrific thought to me, but um, in a way, we kind of slip into this image that everything I don't like about my body will be fixed come the resurrection. The problem is, there is absolutely no evidence within the Bible at all that that is the vision of resurrection. Think about Jesus and Jesus' resurrection body. I, the other thing i should say is not only is it going to be fixed is it's going to look like it did before so there's going to be continuity and there's going to be discontinuity is our natural expectation so the continuity is we're going to look like we did before except we're going to look better that's the discontinuity if you think about the gospels and Jesus' resurrection body you will realize that actually the opposite is the case Think about the gospel accounts and how many of Jesus' disciples didn't recognize him. So immediately, Jesus' resurrection body was discontinuous in that it didn't look, obviously, like it had before. It took people a while to recognize it. It was continuous in that he still had the holes in his hands and his feet and the hole in his side. So the thing that if you want to use this language, disabled Jesus just before his death, continued. The thing that changed after the resurrection um, was what he looked like. And that is profoundly challenging to us. And can we take that over now and think about 1 Corinthians 15? Because 1 Corinthians 15 is a very, very interesting passage in which, as I've said already, Paul is beginning to explore what resurrection bodies are going to be like. And there's a bit in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul starts saying, my body will be sown like this. Well, the resurrection body will be sown like this and raised like that. Sown like this and raised like that. He uses the image of a wheat You wheat seed. You put wheat seed in the ground and it rises to be something different. It's cont- continuous but it's also different what is it going to be sown like and what is it going to be raised like and he uses language very interestingly it is going to be sown a body that is unable and raised a body that is able Um, he uses the word dunamis for the able bit Um, you may know that word we get dynamite from it it's going to be raised a powerful body a body that can do things The lovely word that Paul uses for um, resurrection bodies, which I think is immensely tantalizing, is that it is raised a body, sorry, it's sown a body that is perishable, according to the NRSV, and raised a body that is imperishable. The problem is, the Greek doesn't quite say that. What the Greek does is it has a kind of a dynamic word, and this is where I need to walk, if you will excuse me. So the word perishable is, imagine that this is um, us being born. The word perishable is a word that you walk along here till the moment that you die. You know, So you start off... Um, kind of full of energy and enthusiasm. And as you come along through life, um, things start to creak a little bit. They start to drop off and then you die. It's a very pleasing picture, is it not? The word that Paul uses of the resurrection body goes back in the opposite direction. So it's a body that becomes more and more full of life, more and more full of energy, more and more infused with the life of the spirit. The reason why we make do with the word imperishable is we haven't got an English word for it. It's a word that communicates um, an explosion of energy. That's what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. And for me, one of the really interesting questions that we need to be reflecting on is actually what does that mean about us now and us then? What, if you want to be really challenged by this, what does the word disability mean now? And what might we expect in terms of transformation then? And let me be very, very clear. Um, I think we are all disabled in certain ways. We are disabled by what we can do and by what by what we can't do in this world. I'm not kind of focusing particularly on any one person or one category of person. But Paul's vision is that come the resurrection we will no longer be disabled. And if you talk to people who have a a greater experience of disability, they will often tell you it's not them that are disabled. They are disabled by the context in which they find themselves. So it's a lovely image that come the resurrection, we will no longer be disabled because the context in which we find ourselves will not disable us. We will be full of ability. But it nevertheless raises some hanging questions about what those resurrection bodies are going to be like. What are our experiences going to be like in the light of all of that? So what this does for us is place the importance of embodiment right at the heart of our thinking. You cannot say that bodies are not important if you realise that the body we will have come the resurrection is going to be a truly embodied body. It is a profoundly um, embodied body. What then do we do when we think about bodies? And what I'd like to suggest to you is that the really interesting thing in Paul's writing, and particularly in 1 Corinthians, is that Paul, in 1 Corinthians, I think, plays a fugue around bodies. The idea rises and it falls. He shapes it in all sorts of different ways. And in a way, 1 Corinthians is a long reflection on bodies, their importance, what they mean to us, and how we live properly in them. The problem is that we read 1 Corinthians often in little chunks. So we read 1 Corinthians 5, and then we read 1 Corinthians 13, and then we read 1 Corinthians 8... Then we read 1 Corinthians 13, then we read 1 Corinthians 7, then we read 1 Corinthians 13, because we like that one. Um, You'll get the idea. And the problem is, because we do that, you don't hear the rise and fall of Paul's argument. But if you read, particularly from chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians all the way through you begin to realize that it's all about bodies. He talks about relationships within the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 5. Then he talks about um, sex and kind of issues around, sorry, no, he talks about relationships, Breakdown of relationships in 1 Corinthians 6, then sex in 1 Corinthians 7, then food, then we move on later on in 1 Corinthians 10 to receiving the body of Christ, then you have stuff about um, the Eucharistic service in 1 Corinthians 11, then you've got the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, and you get to 1 Corinthians 15 and resurrection. Bodies are there all over the place in Corinthians. And what Paul is doing is reflecting in a deep and profound way, about what our bodies mean to us. And the one thing I would really like you to take away from this evening is the recognition that bodies are so very important to Paul that it really matters what you do with them. It really matters how you live in your body because it affects who you are. It really matters how you live in your body because it affects who other people are. And the thing to, if in case you're in any doubt that bodies are very important to Paul, just think about 1 Corinthians 12, which is, as I'm sure you know, repeated in Romans 12. When Paul is trying to think of an image, when he's trying to think of a metaphor that best explains identity and how you relate to each other, the image he uses is a body. Because for Paul, bodies are about identity and how you relate to each other. And so therefore, what you've got is this strand running all the way through, which is about what you do with your body affects who you are. Who you are affects what you do with your body. What you do with your body affects those around you. What you do with your body, therefore, affects who they are. Who they are affects what they do with their bodies, and round and round it goes. And that's what he's talking about over and over again in his epistles. So I've come to the moment that I've got to do the thing I don't really want to do, but I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about sex. I was tempted in writing a book on the body just because I felt like it, um, to write a whole book on bodies and never to mention the word sex, because it would have been really pleasing to have done so. But in the end, I realised I couldn't. Um, But nevertheless, I would still half have liked to. And the reason why I would have liked to is I kind of think we've done the subject of bodies and sex quite well over the last few centuries or so and we haven't done the subject of how paul thinks bodies are really important and how they shape our identity very well so given that i felt we were rather in credit on time taken talking about bodies and sex i could take that credit and use it in more interesting areas but i realized eventually that you can't realistically write a book about bodies without just mentioning it briefly so I am going to mention it briefly but let me be very clear it is brief in the book and if I were to give it the same proportion in this talk as i would given in the book and I've just said the word sex and then I'd have moved on because I've only given it two pages and the reason why as I've said I've only given it two pages is because what we do with our bodies is so much more than sex and I'm conscious of where I am, but I would just like to assure you that proportionately two pages in a 60,000 word book is pretty much sums up the proportion of sex and what I, the rest of the things I do with my body in my life. Um, I do all sorts of things with my body, um, but the most important thing is not that word that we insist on talking about all the time. But of course you will say to me, yes, but the the reason why Paul is not pro-bodies, of course, is he's got a thing about sex, hasn't he? Do you know, I don't think he has. Genuinely, truly, do not think he has a thing about sex. And the really important reason why I think that is there's a crucial inverted commas which for me is the kind of central bit for understanding why Paul doesn't have a thing about sex. It's at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, which reads, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, open inverted commas, and you can tell he's about to talk about a quotation because he said about which you wrote, It is well for a man not to touch a woman. Close inverted commas. He then goes on for the rest of chapter 7, to point out why that is wrong, why that is the wrong perception to have about the relationship between men and women. And what you've got to bear in mind, and um, what is absolutely fascinating to me, is that in the first century, both within Judaism and in the Ro- wider Roman Empire, sex was not about mutuality. Women were there to provide a service. It was not in any way to be reciprocated. And what's fascinating about 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul, as far as I can tell, is the first ever person to say sex should be mutual and it gives pleasure. Now, that is not the statement of somebody who, in my view, is opposed to sex. That is somebody saying, actually, there's something here that we need to reflect on. If you know your 1 Corinthians 7, you'll know at the end, he says, well, it's better not to get married. But again, what I think is really interesting about that is he's writing in a world in which women get no choice. You get married because that's what women do. Actually, largely, men got no choice either. Everybody got married because that was their, the expectation of them. And Paul is the first one to say, actually, no. You can choose. And if you want to join me in the proclamation of the gospel, you might choose not to get married. And when you realize it against its context, I would say, possibly to your surprise, that Paul is not anti-sex at all. Paul is a radical forward thinker who thinks that sex should be mutual, sex can give pleasure, and you can choose not to do it if you want to. And for me, that therefore turns a whole question on its head and makes it different. So, what I've tried to do this evening is argue to you that Paul is not antibody. I've only had half an hour, and therefore I haven't been able to go into the ins and outs of precisely the arguments that I might use, so there's probably more things you want to ask me which I'm very happy about. But let me end by saying what I think a positive view of the body in Paul, what difference does it make to us? If we take our bodies really seriously, as I think Paul wants us to, what difference does it make to Christian faith? The difference it makes is that word spirituality, which is on my book cover. The word spirituality is actually one that, come my glorious rule, I would ban Um, I hate the word spirituality, but I hate it for reasons, different reasons than other people hate it. Uh, People hate it for all sorts of different reasons. The reason why I hate it is because it implies that our relationship with God has nothing to do with bodies. And so what I want to argue is that, given I can't ban the word spirituality, what we should do instead is have an embodied spirituality. A spirituality which talks about our relationship with God in terms of our bodies as much as in terms of anything else. The difference that makes is that we then have to think very seriously and very carefully about how we use our bodies in worship. If we engage with God through our bodies, actually, what does our standing and our sitting and our kneeling or our not kneeling communicate about our spirituality? I think it makes a really big difference to our spiritual and prayer lives. Um, when often when we talk about spirituality, the implication is that we go away somewhere very quiet um, and sit in a room by ourselves and pray using only our spirits. You might have gathered that wouldn't be my favourite pastime. Um, but the other reason why that wouldn't be my favourite pastime is because I think care of our bodies should be as important in our spirituality as anywhere else. If we are not taking proper care of our bodies, we are not engaging in proper spiritual discipline. And it seems to me that if we put well-being of our bodies right up there with prayer, then our Christian life starts to look completely different and for me to be really inspiring. And the third thing I want to say about what difference it makes is, for me, the difference it makes is that I've got something to go back to my teenage girls and say, you are beautiful, and your bodies are beautiful, and God thinks so, and I think so, and the Apostle Paul thinks so. And the thing that makes your bodies beautiful is an integration of heart and mind and soul and spirit and body. A truly integrated person is a beautiful person and you are beautiful and i would love my teenage girls to hear that as a strong and passionate voice in christianity which sadly i think they don't at the moment so those are just three reasons why i think it's important i've got about 108 other ones but i won't keep you for now i've talked for too long already now is the time for us to stop and to explore some issues together
0: Thank you Paula very much indeed and now it's over to you please do write down your questions uh, hold them up very clearly they will be uh, collected and taken so that they will suddenly miraculously appear before me and I will try and get through as many as I can some have started to come through but if I can just start Paula I I was conscious uh, as you spoke when you were talking about the body as a place that we can live in that actually today we have this very strong visual culture, that horrific story that was in the press not long ago in Fiji, when TV became uh, popular and, and people had TVs, 12% of teenage girls started to make themselves vomit so that they could look like the Western characters they were watching on TV. So we have this, the strength of the visual culture We have the empowered consumer that if you've got the money, you can pay for your body to be manipulated and changed. So the body today, it seems, is something that you aspire to. You try to perfect, not something you inhabit. How can a Christian plausibly try and critique that today?
1: In many ways. Um, But I'm reminded as you were talking of, um, well I'm reminded of the Old Testament scholar whose name is not going to come to mind immediately, I think it was Robinson, Um, but who said, as human beings we do not have a body, we are a body. And it seems to me that actually that gets right to the heart of exactly what you're saying. Because it seems that within our modern culture, we are people who have bodies and we possess bodies. And if we don't quite have the body we want, then we will do cosmetic surgery on it or we will do, uh, have diets in order to have the body that we want. Um, and I think to have that turn of expectation that says we, it, bodies are not something that we possess bodies are that which tell us deeply who we are we live our bodies Um, and they're not different to us it's interesting even the way we start talking about bodies don't we it's always though you know it's over there Um, it's not really who I am and again that comes from the platonic idea is that once this body's gone I get a new one and then on I live with a different kind of body whereas Paul and the Old Testament writers would say this is it Mm-hmm. This okay. is entirely who you are. So it's about, I think, inhabiting and being the body that you've got.
0: So thank you. So, uh, questions are coming through. Please do keep them uh, coming. So let's start. How far do you think today's obsession with bodies, things we've just been talking about, bums and tums, etc., is because a sense of soul, eternity, transcendence has been lost?
1: There is an argument, and it's an interesting argument, that that is precisely what has taken place. Um, There is an argument within neuroscience that um, many of you will have heard of some of the arguments in neuroscience which argue for the death of the soul. And it, it's a fascinating argument in a way because it goes all the way back to another great philosopher who's Descartes. And Descartes believed that you could locate the soul in the body in a particular gland in the brain. Neurosciences, scientists have now, surprisingly enough, demonstrated that belief to be incorrect. You cannot locate the soul um, in any part of your body. But what you therefore have um, is an underlying view in some circles that your body is all you have. So people like Francis Crick have argued quite strongly that you are just made up of a whole load of cells um, and Mm -hmm. that is who you are. Mm -hmm. And the moment those cells disappear, you've gone, there's nothing left. And to a certain extent, that would support the questioner's view that once all you are is just a whole makeup of cells. then actually what your body looks like becomes increasingly important because if there's nothing more to who you are then actually what you've got now is all there is um but i think i would want to i wouldn't want to kind of contrast the body and the soul quite as the question does but to say that actually an understanding of soul is bigger rather than smaller than the body so the soul is the entirety of who you are it is your body it is also your relationship with god it is your relationship with other people um but it isn't to be located any one place in the body so i think that obsession does come out of that but we need to be slightly more nuanced in how we kind of pull them kind of relate them
0: So just to clarify, how would you succinctly describe the word soul?
1: I would have to say I'm telling you what I think the Old Testament and Paul would say, Mm -hmm. um, because there are other things that we might want to put in as well. But what I think the Old Testament and Paul would say, that the soul might be better translated as the word life force. (laughs) It is that which gives you animation, that which gives you life. You cannot have life without your body. And the problem with the word soul is it implies a life without body. So mm-hmm. I would say Old Testament Paul would identify soul as that which brings you life in its entirety, including your body, but other things as well, the heart and the mind and the emotions, mm-hmm. all of those things.
0: Because uh, Wittgenstein said that the, the human body is the best picture of the human soul. Interesting, Interesting. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's get through the questions. Um, Many Christians pray for the souls of the departed. Ought we instead to be praying for the bodies of the departed?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Um, probably not, if I've just redefined soul as I just have <laughs> redefined soul, because then I get my cake and eat it. Is you, you're praying for the bodies as well. So I think what I would want to do is to say, by all means, but remember that that includes the resurrection bodies of the departed as well as just their inner life.
0: Hmm. Help me with resurrection of the body. I, I liked the, the walking <laughs> and I'm walking back. I like the idea that resurrection is about getting younger every day. But, but help me metaphysically with this concept of resurrection of the body. Because I've been to a creme uh, and I've seen them burned. So, so help me. There's,
1: there's a really, really important shift that goes on in Paul's theology, which is vital for understanding precisely the question that you've asked. Um, Within a Jewish understanding of resurrection, um, you need your body and you need the remains of this body for resurrection to take place. Um, And you can find it running all the way through the post-biblical material within Judaism, the importance of bones. Bones are vital within Judaism because you need them for resurrection. But the key thing that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is actually both connect and decouple our resurrection bodies from this body so when he uses that image of a wheat seed that you plant in the ground and then it turns into something else actually what you have when it grows is not the same thing that was put in the ground and so that what therefore and paul says we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye the implication of his language and the way in which he does it is that we will have a new body it's not the extension of the old body so the loss of your bones will not affect the resurrection according to Paul's theology mm-hmm. that's the theology you want to mm. adopt
0: well we're in St. Paul's, it's good to <laughs> pursue it because um, uh, Ronnie Corbett Died uh, not long ago, and I was thinking as uh, I was thinking about tonight uh, that wonderful song that the two Ronnies used to do when they talked about when the angels were giving out bodies, <laughs> and he said when uh, when they were giving out chins. I thought they said gin, so I asked for a double one. <laughs> Uh, And when they gave out uh, noses, I thought they said roses, so I asked for a big red one. (laughs) Now, there is that sort of discomfort with parts of us that, you know, uh, we always dislike every time we look in the mirror. But let's go a little bit deeper, and this question is here. How do you make yourself at home in a body that seems hostile? Bodies, says the person with impairments, pain. I would then bring in transgender issues. A body that's hostile. How do you live in hostility?
1: I think the first thing that we need to be really clear about is that bodies do affect who we are. And I think the legacy of the way of the kind of the Christian traditions ignoring of bodies has been the argument that actually it doesn't really matter what your body is like, because who you really are is different from your body. And I would say that Paul would disagree entirely. And your body is who you are Um, and therefore that makes this question more important rather than less important that some of us do have to live in bodies that do feel like hostile territory to us and um, we cannot move quickly from that recognition to any kind of helpful solution because That recognition is something that we need to stop with and reflect on, that understanding that our bodies um, do communicate to us and to other people something about who we are, especially when we don't want it to do that, when we don't want for that communication to take place. And so the first thing I want to say is that that is a really significant question and we just haven't spent long enough within the Christian tradition talking about it. The next thing I think I would want to say is that um, feeling at one with your body for whatever reason, whether it be because um, it causes you pain or because you feel you're in the wrong body, for all of those kind of um, issues, I think requires a deep reflection on um, the nature of identity, the nature of what bodies communicate in terms of identity. And reason why I'm kind of fumbling around the edge, is I, in a way I want to say it isn't for me to say. It isn't for me to say to somebody else who feels that their body is hostile to them how they should relate to it, other than that I think it's very important. Um, But I also would want to say that one of the interesting things in 1 Corinthians 15 when it's talking about resurrection is that it does talk about receiving a body that fits the context that you're in, and Paul talks quite a lot about the context that is old creation and the context that is new creation, Um, but also that your body can change to fit that context that you're in, which is why we get a new resurrection body to fit the new context. Um, And so there isn't an answer. If there were an easy answer, we'd all made the easy answer already. One answer is the recognition that resurrection bodies will be, to some extent, a resolution of those issues, because they will be bod- bodies of energy and new life and power and all of those kind of things, which doesn't mean that they'll be recognizably different, um, but just that they won't be disabled anymore. Will they
0: be gendered? As somebody's just said, how gendered are our bodies for Paul? of the resurrection body, will there be male and female?
1: Paul does not talk about gender in terms of resurrection. He of course talks about gender in terms of Galatians 3.28. In Christ there is no male or female, well male and female, slave or free. Um, So therefore on one level he says that um, in Christ now, which is a vision of the future, there is not gender, there is not differentiation. But And then also, you've got to bring in Matthew and Matthew's gospel. That is the argument that there will be no marriage, no giving and receiving of marriage. Um, But in all honesty, he doesn't kind of come down firmly on it. Simply that it won't be an issue anymore. Um,
0: So, so no arguments about. Gender free toilets in heaven.
1: (laughs) I think we can confidently say there will be no arguments at all about gender free toilets in
0: heaven. And I was struck by this word because your body will be enabled. Yes. Um,
1: But but precisely what that looks like, he never ties it down. Yes, I see. And the problem is we want to say exactly how, and you end up having to say we don't know because he never explains it.
0: Uh, There are lots of questions coming in, so forgive me, um, but we need to get through as many as we can. Does 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body, suggest a less positive view of the body than you're giving us?
1: Possibly. It all depends how you interpret... Well, of course it always does, doesn't it? How you (laughs) interpret 1 Corinthians 9.27. The point about that word discipline is it's the word that an athlete uses for getting ready for being an athlete, um, and so I would argue that one corinthians nine twenty seven is not a negative image it 's a positive image. I train my body um, I get my body ready for the task. That, that is required of it, which is in this case is the proclamation of the gospel. So you could argue that 1 Corinthians 9 um, is more negative. I think I would want to go in the opposite direction and say, because my body is so important, I treat it in the way that an athlete would so that I have a honed, tip-top body ready for the proclamation of the gospel, whatever that body looks like. Okay. When I say I, I mean Paul, can I say hastily?
0: One thing we learned at King's College London in the theology department was for all your doctrinal headaches take paradox. <laughs> <laughs> um, does Paul use the word integrated or anything like it when referring to the body?
1: No, and I wish he did. Mm-hmm. I would like it very much if he did. So <laughs> but what? he doesn't so, but, but what he what he talks about um, is a w- what what you find in, well, if you think Paul wrote Ephesians, which is debatable, but it's within the Pauline corpus, within Ephesians what you have a really interesting passage in Ephesians 4, in which he talks about the Gentiles who he then gives an Um, an image of the Gentiles who are not at ease in their body, whose minds are not um, at one with their body, um, whose spirits are not kind of at one with the rest, in contrast to those who are in Christ. And although he doesn't use the word integration, it's the word that best explains that passage in Ephesians 4. So it's a word that I've imported into Paul. Um, And I would like him to use it, but it's what I see um, him talking about. I would argue that 1 Corinthians 12 is an image of integration, the body of Christ working together. Um, But you're very welcome to disagree if you would um, (laughs) see another word.
0: (laughs) There's a lot about Paul, uh, and your book centers around Paul, and we're in Paul's, and and great. But what about if we... Let's go back to Galilee. By all <laughs> Somebody means. Somebody says, and I think it's a question that was in my head, could you tell us more about what Jesus was saying about the body?
1: It's a, very, like you do, it's a fascinating question. Because the reason why I don't do a lot about Galilee is that it, Jesus doesn't talk explicitly very much about bodies. Um, you could argue that he talks about them implicitly, in that he heals them. One of the biggest mistakes we often make when we're reading the Gospels is we we talk about the teaching of Jesus, by which we mean the words that come out of Jesus' mouth. And if you mean the words that came out of Jesus' mouth there's not a lot on bodies but if you take the teaching of Jesus to be Jesus and everything that he did as well as everything that he said then you can argue that he does talk very profoundly about bodies in the miracles the healing miracles and for me what is very important about the healing miracles is that the healing miracles I'm going to use the word again are about integration but in this way they're about integration back into community time and time again the outcome of the healing miracles think about the woman with the hemorrhage is that a woman who has not been able to be in relationship with anyone for years and years and years can now be back in relationship again healing often in Jesus's ministry is about rebuilding relationship And if you recognize bodies to be about how we relate to other people, then you might argue that Jesus speaks, teaches very powerfully about bodies. Bodies are about that relationship. But what we need to be really careful about is the simple shortcut that goes, bodies that are not healed can't be in relationship. And I don't think Jesus implies that at all. But I would want to say the positive, but I wouldn't want to say the negative.
0: It seems that Jesus spots a person's hard little full stop and it might be connected to their body, it might not, but he, he turns it into a comma. Yes. And, and there's That's a new right. chapter, yeah. so you're saying it's not so much about you know, the body, but it's about where it's closed down and where there needs to be some healing of openness. Yes. Um, I'm getting through them here. Um, is the new creation a place in which disability is no impediment? How do we cope with limited capacity for physical interactions in our relationships in the new creation?
1: That's a great, great question. Um, and of course, the answer to all of these questions—so to save me having to say it every time—who knows? Um, and what we've got to do our best about is to interpret what, we've, what we can from the texts without rec- while recognising we haven't got a full range of information. But I think you can discern from 1 Corinthians 15 um, that actually um, what will go on in the new creation is that our bodies will never disable us again. No matter what they are now, they will not disable us. Um, and I've I've wrestled with this when I was writing the book and I had a couple of conversations um, with friends who are in wheelchairs about how it felt to them. Because the problem that they reported to me time and time again is when people talked about resurrection, um, they would say, dear, you'll be healed come the resurrection. You'll be normal again. Which made them go, because they wanted to say, I am normal now, thank you very much. Um, And... What that began to make me realise is that Paul's language about the new creation and our bodies in the new creation is what if in the new creation, um, if you are in a wheelchair now, you will be in a wheelchair then, but then there will be no disability whatsoever. You will be a fully empowered, kind of full of energy person in your wheelchair. Um, And the reason why I just hesitate to say just too much, again, it's not for me to say, I'm not in a wheelchair, so therefore it is not my position to say. And there are some people who say, I deeply yearn for this to be different. But I think what Paul invites us to do is to be speculative and imaginative. And I can speak, therefore, from my experience. And my experience is one in which I have been ill um, on a number of occasions through my life um, and nearly died um, on one occasion. And and therefore, I have an issue with my body. It lets me down at crucial moments. I'm asthmatic. And so therefore, there are times in the year I can guarantee you my body's going to let me down again. Um, And... For me, the image of not needing to be different, my body can still be my body, but actually that it doesn't disable me, is an image that is enormously helpful for me. But even in saying that, I do then need to say that that's me and that's my perception, and I don't want to lay anything on anybody else's experience that is unhelpful for them. So, in a sense, having spoken a long time, I would want to come back and say, do you know, I think we should just start having a conversation about it. We should talk together um, about our joint experiences, about the ways in which at the moment our bodies help us, and the moment our bodies let us down, um, and what our vision of living in bodies in the new creation might look like and feel like.
0: Mm. Um, I'm struck that, um, particularly at the moment maybe, that um, bodies uh, come in shapes and sizes, And the the theology that perhaps we'd want to celebrate is that God gives us enormous diversity. The tragedy is what we make of it is division. And bodies lie at the heart of a lot of discrimination. Bodies of a different color from our own, bodies that make love differently, bodies of different gender, disabled bodies, and so on. But bodies are also what we use when we want to belong to someone we try to fit in we try and wear clothes that will make us acceptable so our bodies are a source of division but they are also paradoxically a way in which we're trying to draw closer to people and there's a question here um can we know god can we know others can we know ourselves except through our bodies
1: no would be my answer, simply. I mean, and, and that, uh, that kind of gets to the heart of, I think, what Paul is talking about, about bodies, is that the idea that you can somehow strip yourself away like an onion till you get to the pure me, that is me, you know, that deep pure me bit that has not got my body attached to it, is, in Paul's mind, utter nonsense. The only way that we can encounter God is by the Holy Spirit dwelling in this temple, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians. Um, The only way that I can know you is in this body relating to you. I can't know you in any other way. I can know Mm. You, through your body, my body knows, you know, that kind of that interaction. The only way in which the body of Christ can engage with anybody else is through the embodied body of Christ corporately as well as individually.
0: And it's such a strong image that the church uses over yes, and over again, perhaps right. too much sometimes, because he uses lots of images. Yes. but tell tell us how body of christ what was he meaning there explain that from paul's perception we know how we've interpreted it what did he mean
1: well what's really interesting is is on one level paul's use of the body of christ was entirely expected in a greek culture because in the greek world if you wanted to talk about something that was corporate you would call it a body so the city states called themselves bodies Mm -hmm. what's Different about Paul and radical and striking is that the city states um, never called, never named the bodies. They were just bodies. Mm. Whereas what Paul said is, you know, that body that walked around in Palestine um, 30 years ago, or well, 20 years ago, when he was writing 1 Corinthians, you're that body. So the body of Christ is somebody's body, not just any old body, it is Christ's body and that is what inhabits and kind of transforms that metaphor is that what paul has is this image of an actual body that people who were alive when he wrote knew what it looked like he now said you together are that body you are the incarnation now now live like you believe it to be true Mm. and that's why it's such an amazing image
0: we were um, talking about uh, Jesus not long ago and um, one of the images pleased to hear it <laughs> yes we occasionally do in St. Paul
1: um,
0: I'm struck that uh, one of the images of Christ that's always resonated for me is uh, he is, as the body language of God yes now the body speaks it is not silent we're, we're told 80 85% of our communication is going on non-verbally through our bodies should there uh, were asked be a theology of body language
1: absolutely there should and just you know if I kind of want to push on boundaries a little bit um what do you think the body language of the church of england looks like at the moment and, <laughs> yeah exactly um, and and i think when you ask it in a very pointed way, and not just the Church of England um, or many other churches too, Um, but that question is a beautifully put um, question. If I think it's even higher than 80% Mm. of how we encounter people is through body language, we have to ask ourselves the very serious question about the body of Christ. What is the body language of the body of Christ? What does it look like to people? Um, And I'm afraid it doesn't look happy to me.
0: No. Answers, please, on a postcard (laughs) uh, to that one. Uh, A question here about the church. Two interesting Mm -hmm. questions. Um, First of all, do you think the church's sensitivity to sexual activities is due to a high or a low view of the body, or neither?
1: Oh, that is a great question, isn't it? Um, I think, I probably think, (laughs) hedging my bets, low. Low. Too low. Okay.
0: Um,
1: and it, it is very easy to stereotype a former age, and so that's why I'm, I'm just hedging myself a little bit. But I think a a world in which the body was seen negatively, if you, kind of, if you kind of put a chain together, if you think that the body is to be regarded negatively, and if you think that sex is a manifestation of the negativity um, to do with that kind of bad image of the body, and if you are an organisation which actually kind of shies away from women quite a lot and therefore largely has your conversation with just one gender and not both genders you know and you can go if 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 then actually if you are effectively going to have a negative view of sex and the bodies and the body you know it it it, it kind of comes out of that culture Um, Mm -hmm. I would say a high view of the body would be one that celebrates the body and everything that it can do in the world, including sex, and that's why I just do want to go back to one Corinthians seven and think and say, I think Paul really was that person. I think he was celebrating the power and the pleasure of sex rather than how he often is interpreted.
0: Hmm. Another question here, which is related to the life of the church, um, about how do our bodies now and in the future connect to the sacraments? Interesting question outward and visible signs
1: yes well paul has an opinion on that which is for me fascinating the thing that is really interesting about paul is just you can never quite capture paul's language about bodies because just when he's done it he spins it again if you read your way through 1 corinthians 10 and 1 corinthians 11 where he's talking about the body of christ is he talking when he talks about the body is he talking about the body of Christ that lived in Palestine, or is he talking about you know, the body of Christ, it, You know, the bread and the blood, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Um, and then he goes on to talk about the 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ, and it's almost as though he spins it time and time again mm-hmm. so that the body of Christ is that which walked around in Palestine. The body of Christ is that which is offered us to us in the Eucharist. The body of Christ is that which we join when we receive the body of Christ in the Eucharist. And he just beautifully spins it round time and time again. And so I think what, what he's doing there is saying the sacraments are that by which you understand your body to be your body. The sacraments are that by which you comprehend Christ's body. The sacraments are that by which you join Christ's body the sacraments of that by which you then participate fully in the life of the body and then he goes round the circle again mm. so it, it's it's beautifully and beautiful and elusive and you need to kind of read it in a chain all the way pretty much from 1 Corinthians 9 through to 1 Corinthians 12 on to 15 um, in order to get the way in which he kind of does this kind of beautiful playing with the imagery
0: could you that's interesting because he uses he he Introduces those words, "This is my body," into the community. Um, can you tell us what you hear when you hear those words? For, how, how does the church hear that? Oh, we hear it a lot. Yes.
1: You've, you've asked me two different questions mm. there. How do I hear it, and how does the church hear it? Yeah. I'll answer the first one and not the second. Okay. Um, I hear what I hear is an invitation into deep and rich thinking um, because I think that when he was there at the Last Supper this is my body on one level means this is my body it's here at the Last Supper and um, this is my body is this bread offered for you as the symbol Or the real, you know, we could talk around the eucharistic theology. The problem is, if you, we can't really impose later eucharistic theology into the Last Supper. But there is certainly something about an offering of Christ's essence in the bread. But when Paul then picks it up in 1 Corinthians um, 10 and 11. What you discover there is another element on top, which often we ignore, which is that Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about um, the way in which they're getting the Last Supper wrong. And the way in which they're getting the Last Supper wrong is that there are people who are not at the feast, and other people have um, become blathered at the the feast before the people who are not there have arrived. And I think that one of the things that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11 is those who eat and drink um, unworthily um, without comprehending the body um, are, he's also saying, actually, you need to look around to see who is excluded from your feast when you are feasting, um, celebrating the Last Supper. So you need to recognize the presence of Christ. You need to recognize the solemnity of what we're doing in the sacrament. But at the same time, you also need to look around and see who's been excluded excluded by the way in which you're acting i think we're probably quite good at one and two but i don't think we're any good at number three when we're reflecting on what we're doing um in the light of that
0: and what strikes me from what you've said this evening about learning as a christian to live in your body to make home in it once we are able to look at our brothers and sisters and say this is my body then we're reflecting him
1: Yes, in a, indeed, in absolutely. Rather and, than,
0: please don't look at my body. No,
1: indeed, that's right. But then also we might want to say, and this is our body, together. You know, I see the body of Christ
0: uh-huh. laid out
1: before me gloriously.
0: Yeah. Time's running out, so I'm just going to put two together here. What might Paul say, brackets, of course, what do you say? Yes, brackets? what do
1: I say? First?
0: <laughs> On the issue of genetic engineering mm-hmm. and... Would Paul approve of tattoos?
1: (laughs) Nicely put together. Um, I think what Paul might want us to have a conversation about is back about identity and the bodily identity that we were talking about earlier. Um, I don't think he would have... Well... I don't know what opinion he would, what opinion would have. What, what I would want to say would be that that is such a deep and complex question that I think there are lots of bits of Paul's theology to bring to the table, to bring to the conversation, but I don't think you can say easily he would say yes or he would say no. I think what he would say is, let us think carefully about bodies and identity and relationship and how they all relate to each other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What would you think about tattoos... I'm not sure he would have any problem with tattoos.
0: Our <laughs> um, next speaker then... is Nadia Boltz-Weber. So <laughs> uh, that's a really that good that thing to right. hear. <laughs> yeah. um, time's coming to an end, but often I, I ask a speaker just to give us a thought for which we can carry out uh, with us as we go. Uh, and what Paula has asked to do is just to read... Uh, three or four minutes from her book which you feel summarizes really what you want us to, to take out yes. with us today. So, uh, Can I ask Thank you, you to, yes. to read?
1: This is the um, conclusion to the chapter Beautiful Bodies. Two interlocking themes emerge from Paul's fugue on the body in 1 Corinthians. One is that our bodies are the means by which we relate to one another. The other is that what we do with our bodies affects those with whom we relate. On one level, this is a spectacularly obvious thing to say. But on another, it is a lesson that needs learning and relearning every day of our lives. Our bodies provide us with the most precious gift we could have. They allow us to touch and to be touched. The gift of relationship through our bodies is a gift to be treasured. Our bodies weave us into a network of relating that simply would not be possible without them. But the way we touch and are touched by others deeply affects who we are as people. If identity and relationship are linked, then how we give and receive in relationship affects who we are as people. Loving, compassionate touch causes us to grow and thrive. Abusive, power-driven touch causes who we are to shrivel and die. Paul's message to us still rings loudly in our ears. We must take with the utmost seriousness the consequences of the way in which we relate to others. Many people suffer the heartache and loneliness that comes from insufficient loving touch. Worse even than that, however, is that Christian communities around the world live with the unremitting shame of the fact that the members of the body of Christ have abused others. This is the evil underbelly of the traditional Christian refusal to take bodies sufficiently seriously. If we acknowledge Paul's present premise that our identity is formed by relationship, and if that relationship has been abused, then the body of Christ itself becomes ugly and toxic. Beautiful bodies are not characterized by appearance, but by inner and outer integration. One of the themes that emerges from Paul is that my body includes but does not end with my physical body. The description body reaches beyond just my physicality to that which meets, honours and expresses love to those I meet. My body is our body woven together in relationship. What makes a body beautiful is integration. The physical that which is directed towards human life, that which is directed towards God, thoughts and actions, the way in which we relate to others, the way in which others relate to us, all of these make up my body. A beautiful body is one which finds all these elements and more in perfect harmony. This is something we know at an instinctual level, Someone who is at ease with themselves and other people is recognisably beautiful, whatever they look like. Likewise, someone whose features fit the accepted norm for beauty, but who is uneasy with themselves and with others, mars their beauty. The striking question that each one of us must ask ourselves is on this reckoning, how beautiful am I?
0: thank you Paula Um, if you came in with your inner Plato I hope that tonight after what we've heard you might go home with a little bit of inner Paul uh, coming out with you Uh, I was struck as you were speaking I was thinking of Beautiful Love 3 by George Herbert where Um, love took my hand and smiling did reply this sense that love has to be embodied and therefore if love has to be embodied of course christian faith has to be and so does christian living and yet we need reminding of that day in day out because of this little plato that's hovering and uh, i want to to thank you on behalf of everyone here for all the work you've been doing to help correct um, our, our sense of body and soul I was not wrong was I here is passion clarity a teasing mixture of seriousness and fun Paula is thank God a Christian provocateur who is out to reintroduce us to our first love And for that, on behalf of everybody here, I want to thank you very much.